invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 1, making our way rapidly through these verses. Romans 1, and we will be reading verses 8 through 15 as we wrap up this particular section entitled, What Makes the Believer Tick? Out of respect and honor of the Word of God, I would invite you to stand as I read for you verses 8 through 15. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps, now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. As we've worked our way through these verses, I've talked about what is our desire, what is it that motivates us, what gets you up in the morning. This morning we're going to focus on another word that's related, and we're going to talk about passion. What's your passion? If I were to ask you the question, who is the most passionate person you know, does some, someone come to mind? Would it be yourself, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend? Who is the most passionate person you know? If you have someone in mind, assuming you know that they are passionate, I would also assume that you know for what they are passionate about. Because you cannot be a passionate person or be known as a passionate person unless that passion is made known, unless that passion is revealed. The truth of the uh, matter is, is that passionate people have a problem. They can't hide their passion. It leaks out wherever they go. Their passion is going to come out. Now, we have been considering what are the things that Paul identifies about himself that make him tick. The question I have been wanting us to answer individually is what makes me tick? What makes us tick as individuals? What are your passions and pursuit in life? And there's another important question because you may have a passion for golf. You may have a passion for baking. You may have a, a passion for music. But the most important question I need to ask you is of your passions. Do they line up with what is biblical? Do they line up with the revealed will of God? 
while what Paul offers us about his own heart is not an exhaustive list about everything that made him tick or everything that ought to make us tick, there, there are certainly key attributes of what ought to be true for each of us as believers. And we've considered the first three of these, that believers are to be a people of praise. We are to be filled with gratitude, not only for God saving us, but for each and everything he allows in our lives day by day and in moment by moment. We're to be a people of prayer, that we are earnestly praying for not only our own interests and needs, but for the needs and interests of others. And as that wonderful bookmark has for you, we have the prayers of Paul for the church, and we are to be a prayerful people. We're to be a people with a plan. We're not to just wander aimlessly day by day through this life. Every day you should have some purpose and plan that says, today I will seek to accomplish these things for the glory of God. How else will you know if you've fulfilled those things? This morning we look at what we'll call Paul's passion. And we'll make this assessment that a believer is to be a person with a passion. We find Paul's great desire that drove his ministry. This morning we consider what Paul was passionate about. And in so doing, we will come back to that question that I want you to at least answer for yourself. For what am I passionate? For what am I most passionate? And does that passion line up with Paul's passion? Does it need to line up with Paul's passion? As I am so fond to remind you of, Paul made this incredible statement. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So I think whatever Paul was passionate about ought to be what we seek to be passionate about. But of course, ultimately, the issue is, are the things that drive me, are the things that motivate me, are they biblical? Does that passion then reveal itself to others? And so we begin by noting this last point of this section. The believer is a person with a passion. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So we've considered those first three or four attributes of what made Paul tick, what motivated him in his living out of the gospel. And we come to this fourth one that ought to be true of every believer. And let me just state it this way. We must have a passion and specifically a passion for proclaiming the gospel to the glory of God. Every believer has been saved by one thing. We know it's Jesus Christ, but it's the gospel. The gospel is what you've heard. The gospel is what the Spirit of God uses, the truth about Christ's coming and his living out a perfect life and dying on the cross for your sin and being buried but raised again on the third day, never to die again, blazing away into heaven by which he said, if you believe in me, I've made the way and you can come to heaven through me. Do you have that sense of passion that that gospel message is what God used to save you? And by saving you, he glorifies himself. And now you and I have the responsibility, the privilege of proclaiming the same message that brought us to faith 
to others so that they may hear and repent and be saved to the glory of God. Before we delve into our text, let me remind you that we are all, each and every one who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, we are all proclaimers of the gospel. If you are a believer, it is because of the gospel. And then that means you should possess and develop a passion to proclaim the gospel of Christ. One attribute of authentic faith, beloved, is the desire to share the gospel. Let me say that again. One of the key attributes of authentic faith, if you are truly saved, if you know Christ dwells within you, you can't help but to tell others about him. Now, sometimes that needs to be developed because some of us, well, we're fearful of others. And we're afraid of what other people are going to think if I talk to them about this man that lived some 2,000 years ago who's not just man, he's also God. And what if they don't believe it? And I have to remind myself, it doesn't matter. It's not, that's not my responsibility. Whether they believe it or not is not up to me because I can't make them believe. But what I am called to do is proclaim the truth of the gospel. This motivation of Paul to proclaim the gospel is grounded, by the way, in the great commission that was given by Jesus himself. Jesus commanded his followers, as we're so familiar, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, to go and make disciples of all the nations. As we'll come to see in verses 14 and 15, it reveals to us that Paul is actually echoing. There's an echo of that very sentiment. But not only is Paul echoing that sentiment, the words he chooses to describe his own heart and his own attitude with regard to proclaiming the gospel, well, they are, they're deep and they're rich. And if I could say it this way, they're utterly intense. If I do my job right today, you should be overwhelmed with what pushed and motivated Paul. And we should all be on our knees praying, God, help me be such a person to your glory. We see this attitude of Paul expressed elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. You tell me if there's an intensity here. You tell me if there's a motivation here, if this is what made Paul tick. He said, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. I'm under obligation, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me, I'm a cursed man. If I do not share the gospel, if I don't talk to other people about Jesus, when I tell everybody I'm a Christian, that's bringing a curse on me. Paul was driven by this intense desire to proclaim the gospel. I say to you, this is his passion, this was his pursuit, this was his purpose in life. Everything he did, as we read throughout the book of Acts, he did everything he said and did was filtered through this passion. Does it help me communicate Christ? And may that be our desire, that somehow we might learn what this motivation of Paul was so that we might pray for the grace of God, that we might muster up even a tenth of that enthusiasm. I would tell you if we were a, a tenth as enthusiastic about the gospel as, as Paul, we would be doing amazing things to the glory of God. Amen. 
would we say of ourselves, woe to me if I do not preach. Woe to me if I do not proclaim. Woe to me if I do not share with my own mouth and my very life the wondrous gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, beloved, is the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners and that by his work on the cross he saves sinners, sinners like you and me And this news is so glorious and so wondrous that we can say nothing but woe to us. Bring a curse upon us if we do not proclaim it as we ought. If we are not so motivated to make known the very truths that saved our own souls. If you are planning to go to heaven because of what Christ has done for you, it should be with great joy that we tell others. Well, let us consider our text in two points. First, we will look at Paul's debt, and then we will consider Paul's determination. Paul's debt and determination. May the Lord allow these things to now take root in our hearts that we might participate in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as we ought. Let's begin with Paul's debt. Again, verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation. Paul begins by making a statement about himself. It's something else we learn about him. And one of the first things he tells us here, he says, I am under obligation. Or more literally, according to the Greek, he says this, I am a debtor. I am in debt. I am a debtor. Before we flesh this out a bit more, I'd like to point out to you that in verses 14 through 16, if you'll note this with me, we're presented what was sometimes offered up as Paul's three great I am statements. There are three statements that Paul makes in verses 14, 15, and 16 that are utterly amazing, and they would serve as great sermons, each one on their own. We see here in verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. Notice in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel. And then in verse 16, you might have heard this one a few times in your Christian experience. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We are looking at the first two of these I am statements of Paul. And then we'll come back in a couple of weeks to pick up the one in verse 16. But I want to point these out to you because I believe they help us realize the intentionality, the intense passion of Paul regarding the gospel. Even in verse 14 where he doesn't actually use the word gospel, he does in verses 15 and 16, it is absolutely implied. Paul is under obligation. He is a debtor to proclaim, to share the gospel, he says, to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, when Paul says, I'm under obligation, we should note that he is using the present tense. The verb is, I am. He says, I am presently. I am now and continually under obligation. There is this compulsion of Paul. He doesn't give himself a break from this particular task. You ever like to give yourself a break from things? You're like, I've done this so much. You know, in ministry, uh, I remember... One time, we were at a uh, uh, conference for uh, for the, the the group that we were involved with at the time, and uh, I'd been asked 
to open in prayer, to pray for different meals. I was, just, I was praying, praying, praying. I was involved in all of these meetings. And then the conference was over, and we all went out to dinner because now we're done with all of the heavy work, right? And I remember one of the pastors looking at me and saying, Hey, Ed, would you pray? And I just felt like, again, you know, can't somebody else pray? And uh, I, I mean, it wasn't exact like that, but I did say something. We were kind of having uh, fun with it from the idea that you just you can't ever stop. It just always is there. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm I'm continually on when it comes to the gospel. There's never a time when I'm going to let down, let go and just and, and, and just neglect it. I am, he says, under obligation. I am under compulsion. He'll go on to describe his great eagerness, this great desire he has to evangelize, to to teach the gospel, not only to those who are unsaved, but as I think we need to be reminded to those who are saved. These are the saints. These are the believers at Rome. And he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Notice that Paul does not say that he had been under obligation, but now it has somehow been fulfilled. He does not say he is sometimes under obligation. Paul indicates that this is his continual heart. This is what makes him tick. This is what gets him up in the morning. This is what drives him. Listen, regardless of his circumstances... Regardless of the status of his relationships, regardless of how he might feel on any given day. You remember there was one day he went and preached the gospel and the whole group was so excited about it, they stoned him. And they dragged him out of the city. And what does he do the next day? He gets up and he goes back into the city. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. I'd be like, God, give me a couple of days off. It did not matter what others may have thought about him, whether they thought well of him or whether they thought he was a a fool. He existed by the grace of God to proclaim the gospel of God to the glory of God. And I pray that that would be our own personal purpose statement. That's a passion to exist by the grace of God to proclaim the gospel of God to the glory of God. I would ask the question, because I had to ask myself this question as I was studying this, not only is this a, is this a purpose, good purpose statement for my life, and I said, well, yeah, that's a great purpose statement for my life. Then the second question I had to ask myself, and I ask you, if you had to have a purpose statement for your life that was developed according to the way you've lived your life in the last month or the last year, would that be it? Because that would reveal to you where you need to pray, where you need to shore some things up in your relationship. Let us pray that we would be able to say we exist by the grace of God to proclaim the gospel of God to the glory of God. And then let us do more than simply make the statement. That sounds good, doesn't it? We could plaster that everywhere in this church. We exist for the, by the grace of God to proclaim the glo- uh, gospel of God to the glory of God. It means nothing unless you do it, unless we are faithful, unless that truly is our passion. 
But Paul goes on to say something interesting. He says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. And we need to ask the question, what was Paul's debt? What is it that he's under obligation to? Now, the text tells us straight up what it is. But I'd like to pause for a moment and remind you what Paul's debt is not because I think there's a, there's a dangerous tendency that we have sometimes in Christianity. And this is more true in certain aspects of Christianity than others, but it bleeds, I think, into every, uh, every denomination, every group of Christians. And so the phrase under obligation, it's interesting, it's actually a noun in the Greek, as we pointed out. It means debtor. In other words, Paul equals a debtor. That's how he describes himself. I, Paul, am a debtor. Now, a debtor is one who owes a debt to someone or something. Generally speaking, we might come to think of this debt as being some kind of divine obligation to Christ. I owe Christ something. He saved me. Now, I have a debt that I need to what? Repay. What's wrong with that statement? The one who paid the price for our sins on the cross, we might consider this debt to be the carrying out of the great commission or of our proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And while I cannot deny biblically that there is a sense of duty and there is the sense of obligation we have, and there really should flow out of a sense of gratitude, I believe, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, we cannot truly say that we have a debt to God or a debt to Christ. We run a great risk if we misunderstand this idea of debt in relationship to the Christian life. So let me be clear. Paul's debt, his obligation here in the text, is not to God in order to repay his salvation. He does not say, I owe God something, but kind of unusual to in our general thinking, he says, I have a debt to people I don't even know. I have a debt to the Greeks. I have a debt to the, the, the barbarians, and the Greeks are the cultured ones, those who spoke Greek. The barbarians, the Greeks thought they all their language sounded like bar, 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 and so that's the idea, literally, that's how it came up with barbarians. And so they were the non-Greek-speaking people. Doesn't matter whether you're wise or foolish. He says, I have a debt to all sorts of people. Our salvation, though, is not a debt that we can repay. Nor is it a debt that could ever be repaid. Now, some of you are going to think that I've lost my mind, and some of you have thought, well, we've known that for a while already. And you may think that I'm splitting some hairs here, but I want us to be as biblically accurate as we can. And I will confess there is a certain aspect in which, yes, I'm splitting some hairs, but I think it's an important point to point out. I need to tell you that I hope you will ponder, and that is this, that the grace of God that leads to salvation does not produce debt. The grace of God that leads to our salvation does not produce debt. It is by the grace of God that our debt for our salvation has been paid. Grace does not produce debt. Grace produces gratitude. We love to sing a variety of biblical hymns, and one of those hymns is this, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
And one of the verses reads this way, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Now, do not get me wrong. I do not believe the hymn is heretical or that the author of the hymn got something wrong. I do believe he understood the grace of God properly. I understand the sense of gratitude that ought to cause us to see what Christ has done and secured for us on the cross, that he has provided forgiveness for our sins, that that carries with it this sense of he did all of this for me. I, I ought to do something for him. That sense of duty that because Christ has done this for me, I am now, we would say, obligated to do something for him. But, beloved, we must never conclude that we have a debt to repay to God. You are free in Christ. The wages of sin produces a debt. The wages of sin is death. You continue in your sin. You earn this accumulated debt that will crush your soul. But the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been set free. You've been released from the burden. There is no debt if you are in Christ. In speaking of the new covenant blessings that would come upon Israel, and we experience them too as believing Gentiles, the Lord says this in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. I love these verses. The Lord is speaking and he says, For I will take you from among the nations, because they would be scattered, gathering you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, notice what he says. I, the Lord God, will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Then you will be careful to observe my ordinances. According to this text, why is it that a believer observes the ordinances of God? How is it that they can even do any duty to God? Because of themselves? Because of what they're able to do as as, here, let me show you how grateful I am. I'm going to do all of these things in my own power. No, it's by his spirit that he put in you. He causes you to walk in his way. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that we would walk in them. It is God who causes it. It is God who does it. Jesus Christ said in, the, in John 15, 6, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. It is God who is fulfilling it. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, Paul says, both to work and to will according to his own good pleasure. Now let me ask you, Is our walking in his ways and being careful to observe his ordinances an obligation or debt we fulfill? Or is it evidence of his spirit 
at work within us. It has to be the latter. If you are doing his will, it's because his spirit is in you and he is working out all of these statutes and ordinances in your life. It is an evidence of his work within us. And while we should carry the sense of duty and obligation and, and, and such, we recognize that ultimately it is the work of Jesus Christ. We recognize that it is by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We recognize that we have nothing to repay because as the hymn writer wrote, Jesus paid it all. Now the next line of the hymn says what? All to him I owe. Well, now that's true. But then the realization is, but he took care of it. I may owe him everything, but I have nothing else to offer him except just to say, Lord, here is my life. May your spirit dwell within me and cause me to walk in your statutes to walk according to your ordinances. Well, this is a rather long-winded way of saying that whatever Paul's debt was, uh, was, it was not related to him owing God something. So to whom was Paul a debtor? Well, we can be glad that Paul answers that a lot uh, quicker, a lot easier than what I just did for you. He says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. His debt is not directed to God at all. It is directed towards people. If we're going to imitate the passion of Christ, we should recognize that you do have a debt to other people. And generally speaking, people you do not even know. It's one thing to owe your friend something. It's one thing to, to have a sense of, hey, well, uh, I had lunch with Brother Pat uh, the, uh, a couple months ago, and he's, uh, he paid for it, so now next time it's on me because you know, we got to keep, keep everything even. No, this is the people you don't even know. Paul felt a debt to all people because he knew from what he had been saved from. I've been saved from hell. I've been saved from eternal destruction. And he knew what he had been saved for, and that for was to be a witness, to proclaim, to share Jesus Christ. I don't care what your job is. I don't care if you think you're retired or if, you, if you're just starting out in the workforce or if you're a student in school. That's not your primary focus. Those are just a means to an end. You are in school to the glory of God. And how do you glorify God? You know and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in the workforce to the glory of God so that you might share the gospel with those around you. You are retired to the glory of God so that you might take the time and the opportunities to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew what he had been saved from to proclaim the good news that would deliver others from what he recognized was his own previous plight. I knew I was a sinner destined to eternal damnation, that apart from Christ, I would spend eternity in agony for my sin. But praise God, somebody revealed the gospel to me that told me my sins have been paid for I've been purchased with the price of the blood of the Lamb, and I no longer belong to myself, but to him who died and rose again. 
and what he's given me to do, what else could I do? There's that sense of duty. But why else would I want to speak of anything else? It's not out of obligation in the sense of proclaiming the gospel to the glory of God. What else would I do? But I do owe other people to speak of that message, to speak of those truths. I love how Spurgeon put it. He said, he who knows what he's been saved from knows what he's been saved for. Paul's obligation was to all people, and it consisted of sharing this wonderful Savior who had saved his soul from eternal destruction. Jesus himself indicated that this would be Paul's obligation. In Acts 9.15, Jesus said to Ananias concerning Paul, listen, this is what Jesus said to Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine. Why? To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Why is this one belong to me? Because I want him to speak of the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the nation of Israel. Paul was obligated to proclaim Christ to all kinds of people. This indicates to us the universality of the gospel for all people everywhere, meaning that Paul understood he had a binding moral commitment to proclaim the gospel to all men. And we see that in his life. I often wonder as I read through the book of Acts, I mean, it doesn't seem like it took but five minutes before whoever met Paul knew that Paul was on a mission for the living God. And I wonder, it might take me five hours to get to that. I don't know. And then Paul tells his readers that there's no class. There's no race distinction among people. It doesn't matter whether they were the cultured Greeks or the uncultured barbarians. It did not matter whether they were cultured or not. It did not matter whether they were wise or if they were educated. Here Paul echoes the great commission of what? Go and make disciples of who? All the nations. Everyone that you have an opportunity to, as I love Mark 15, 16, 15, that says what? Go and preach the gospel to all creation. If it moves, share the gospel. Beloved, the gospel knows no bounds. The gospel Paul proclaimed and the gospel we proclaim is to cross every cultural, every ethnic, every economic line. It is to be that which motivates us to speak to all people in all places at all times, regardless of who they are, regardless of their status socially, spiritually, mentally, politically, materially. It does not matter color or creed. We have to get into our heads if that person has a pulse if that person is breathing i need to speak of the gospel to him or to her this obligation that paul speaks of here is the good news of who jesus is and what he has accomplished for sinners all of god's grace all of God's mercy and forgiveness, all blessings, every conceivable blessing you and I can possibly imagine is rolled up in this package, this gift we call the gospel. Many of you have been wrapping packages, I assume. My wife is frantically wrapping packages. She's one of these evil package wrappers. She'll take things out of the box that have 
multiple pieces and wrap each individual piece so you have to figure out where it all goes. So if you are coming over for Christmas, you have been warned. But the gospel is this gift. And one of the neat things, have you ever had, uh, I love it when you do a gift with a child. The the child knows the gift. You get a gift, you know, you help them wrap it, and this gift's going to be for mom. And they can't hardly wait for mom to open it. In fact, they don't wait for mom to open it. They're like, hey, mom, look this. And they're opening it because they want to open the gift and hand it to the parent. That should be us. We have the gift of the gospel, and you should be saying, I've got something i got to show you. I'm going to open it up. Wait, it's a gift. Yes, it is, but I'm opening it for you because you might open it wrong. Those of us who have believed the gospel are under obligation to share it with others. Again, as Spurgeon has said, he who knows what he's been saved from knows what he's been saved for. I'd have you imagine that you belong to a remote village. I know that'd be hard for some of you to imagine. And your village has been struck with a severe drought. Water has not been available for quite some time. All the livestock, all the crops, even the people are suffering under the burden of this lack of water. And one day you're, you're walking a, a mile or two away from the village and you come across some water. You recognize there's a spring and you start moving some rocks and there's water bubbling up. The first thing you do because you've been longing for water is what? You drop to your knees and you begin to drink this cool, refreshing water and you see it bubbling up there. You look up and you can see off in the distance the village. What do you do? It's mine. Is that what you say? I'm just going to keep it, and I'm just going to let everything else rot and die. No, what would you do? You would recognize the water doesn't belong only to you. You are obligated to tell your fellow villagers about the spring. With the knowledge that this will save your village, you are compelled. You now have a passion to tell them, come to the water that will save. Beloved, this is what Paul means when he says he's under obligation. I've been exposed to the living water. I know where the wellspring is. I can bring it to you. You don't even have to go. I can just open it up for you right here. And I must tell you, because you're rotting away. You're dying of spiritual thirst. And I have the living water. And here it is. Come and drink. This was Paul's debt, and it ought to be our debt as well, but there's more. Verse 15, and we see Paul's determination. Paul says, for my part, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There's a sense in which I've gotten ahead of myself in the study this morning But let me tell you something, beloved, the gospel message is the currency by which we pay our debt, by which we pay our obligation to others. 
We're in debt. Paul says, I'm in debt. Well, when you're in debt, you need money, right? If you owe the bank $50,000, you have to pay it off. You've got to come up with the funds to do that, whether it's instantaneously or over time. Well, Paul says he's in debt, but what is the currency by which he can pay his debt? And it's the gospel message. And it's not until we get to verse 15 that we actually see Paul state explicitly that the gospel is this currency that pays the debt to others. Notice how verse 15 begins. Very interesting translation of the Greek text, by the way. He says, it says in our text, so for my part. But the Greek text literally reads this way, and I wish they had just put it this way. Here's how it reads. So as much as is in me. So as much as in me. I love that. What are we to understand Paul saying here? We are to understand that in view of what he just said in the previous verse, he now states that as far as he is able, as far as his ability will carry him, as much as he is resolved, we might say it this way, with every fiber of my being, I am going to give this task everything I have. Is that intense? Get in my way and I'll just run you over. Nothing will stop me so as much as is in me. Is that a passion? Is that a motivation? Should that be what we pray for ourselves and what we pray for one another in this church? That we wouldn't be mediocre in our proclamation of the gospel? that we wouldn't be negligent, that we wouldn't be half-hearted. Paul says there's nothing half-hearted in this. I'm pouring myself into this particular task. I devote myself to it. And what is the task? His task is paying the debt to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, to anyone that he can. I am paying the debt to all whom I come in contact with, and I'm paying them with the currency of the gospel message. The main action of verse 15 is found when he says, I am eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Like we noticed when Paul said, I am a, under obligation, I am a debtor, the word eager here, again, is not a verb, but it's a noun. Paul says, uh, I equal a debtor, I'm a debtor. Now he says, I am this eager, I am eager. It is a noun that means I am ready, I am willing, I am determined, I am resolved. It actually comes from a root word, and I love the root word. The word eager here means to run out of breath, as if I've been running for a long time and I'm panting to get air. That's how eager I am. I'm just chomping so much. I'm so motivated that I'm nearly out of breath. Paul uses this word. He's setting forth his overwhelming passion to proclaim the unsearchable riches of the grace of Christ to anyone. 
Paul says that he is eager, ready, zealous to the point of breathlessness to share the gospel. Paul says that he is absolutely resolute in this idea. I must preach. I must proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. I mean, if you were one of these Roman believers, what's the first thing you expect to come out of Paul's mouth when he finally sees you? You're going to hear the gospel. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. It wasn't like, can I offer you a drink uh, of water, Paul? You want to sit down and have something to eat, Paul? Hey, let's get your luggage settled. You can go to your room and rest for a little bit. It would seem to me that they would be saying, okay, Paul, let us have it. We know this is your passion. Why would we try to squelch that? I love the, the intensity of this. Now, there's a quick question that gets asked when we address the, as this question. This, and that's why is Paul so zealous to proclaim the gospel to these he has identified as believers in Rome. Some have thought this is a difficulty, and I'm not really sure why, because Paul does say at the end of the letter, of course, that he wants to preach the gospel to those where the gospel has never been preached before. So what's he doing here? But the answer seems to be quite obvious. As Paul desires not only to preach the gospel to those who have never heard, that's his passion, but it's quite obvious he loves to preach the gospel to those who have heard. He loves to tell the story to those who know it best. And so he wants to give to them this, this message to preach to them who are saved. Why would you preach the gospel to those who are saved? We have this, again, this messed up notion in our American Christianity that the gospel is primarily for the unsaved. No, the gospel is for everyone at all times. And you who are saved need the gospel just as much as the one who needs to hear it for the first time. You were saved by the gospel. You are taught by the gospel. You will enter in glory because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to further their understanding. He wants to deepen their faith in the truth. And we're reminded the gospel is for all people, saved and unsaved. And I submit then, let us never grow weary in hearing and proclaiming the truths of the gospel. As we close, let me spend a few moments on some specific applications. I would like to begin, first of all, with making an application to those of the church, those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would have you remember that the gospel you believe is being spoken of by others concerning you. If you go back to verse 8, notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for or concerning you because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And it reminds me that if we profess to be believers, then what we believe about the gospel is being proclaimed. If you are here and you're a Christian, what you believe about the gospel is being proclaimed. And so the question becomes, what do you believe about the gospel? Are you really filled with the intensity and the wonder and the awe of it so much that it drives you to just say, I can't believe that I've been saved by the grace of God. And if I've been saved by the grace of God then anybody can be saved. And that means I should be telling other people about this gospel that saves. Are we proclaiming then the gospel biblically? Does your life and your words accurately reflect 
the gospel of God. This gospel used as currency by Paul to pay his debt to others so that they might, what, hear and respond to the saving call of Jesus Christ. Let me, I don't want to be, you know, too negative here, but let me say this. If we're not seeing opportunities, making opportunities to proclaim the gospel, if we're not seeing people responding could it be that we're not sharing the currency of the gospel correctly? Could it be that we're, we're holding on to, the, to it a little bit more? We're, we're keeping it tight in our pockets? Let me tell you something about the currency of the gospel message. Your bank account will easily run dry. I don't care how much you have in it. It ain't lasting forever. I know that most of you in this church, this body, I mean, we, we have to practice being frugal in various areas because, well, we know money's finite. But the gospel is unlimited. The currency of the gospel, you can share the gospel a million times and you will not begin to put a dent in the bank account of the currency of the gospel. I submit to you that we should pray that we overflow with gospel truth. That we are known as a generous people. Now, other people may not see it as generosity. They may see it like saying, that person's a fool for Christ. Praise God. Call me a fool for Christ if that's what it takes. But I want to be known as somebody who's proclaiming Christ. We are to adorn ourselves with the gospel so that others may see how the gospel has actually changed our lives. To drive this point home, look with me at Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Titus 2, 9 and 10. And we read there, Interesting statement, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will, notice this, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What are you talking about here? Well, let's just put it in today's context. We might speak of employers and employees. The attitude that Paul is suggesting here, not suggesting, exhorting, ought to be the same. Believers are to adorn themselves, it says, that is properly and beautifully display. Now notice how Paul puts it. They are to display through their submissiveness, through the excellence of their work, through their respectful attitude, through their honesty, and through their loyal sense of service to their employer. What? The doctrine, the teachings, the truths of God. And what do we call the truths of God that Paul is referring to here? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, believers are to be eager. We are to be ready, zealous to preach or proclaim the gospel with all who are in our sphere of influence and let me remind you of this truth. The gospel is more than words. It's not just about me living like the devil and then pausing. Hey, by the way, uh, let me tell you about this Jesus. Because that's going to undermine 
that gospel message. It is to be conveyed with words, but it is to be demonstrated in and through the way God has now caused us to walk in his statutes. To those whom Paul had ministered in, uh, we see this in the way Paul had spoken of uh, how he ministered to those in Thessalonica. Consider what he wrote. He said, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only what? The gospel of God. It, it was our joy to share the currency of the gospel of God. But not only that, we also shared our own lives. It was matched. This message that we gave you, it matched our lives because you had become very dear to us. Now consider how Paul goes on. He actually tells us what gospel living looks like. What does gospel living look like? He says in verses 9 through 12, For you recall, brethren... The, is, is living the gospel easy? He, he shared the words, but he says, Now you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God. How, notice the gospel changed them in the way they lived, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Did you catch the words? Paul says we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring. I'm giving you the currency of the gospel, but it matched our lives because you saw that the gospel changed us. We were devout and upright and blameless in your sight, and you knew it very well. Is that the way you want to live your Christian life? That's the way Paul is saying he lived out his life. This is what it is to be eager and ready to proclaim the gospel. Now let me offer a thought to those of you who are not believers. I would ask you not to forget that while you remain in an unsaved state, you are spiritually lost to God. This means that you are liable to his judgment because of your own sins against him. Therefore, you desperately need what Paul described in verse 9 as the gospel of his son. This is the gospel which Paul was eager to proclaim, the gospel that we who believe are ready to proclaim. And it tells you that God himself has provided the substitute for sinners like you. And that substitute is not your good works. It's not what you can attain. It's not what you can do. It's what he will do when he puts his spirit in you and causes you to walk in his statutes. But how did that come about? You needed the substitute of his son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins that were due by facing the wrath of God you deserved on your behalf. He did all of this who trust in him alone for salvation. And the question then simply becomes, will you trust him? Will you trust Jesus Christ as your redeemer, your savior, and your Lord? And I want to remind you that if you are trying to figure this out, there's only one thing hindering you from receiving Christ, and that's yourself. He's ready and willing to receive you, 
if you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that you will believe that God raised him from the dead to prove that your sins have been paid for. And so I ask you, do you know that your sins have been paid for? This is the gospel. This is the gospel we are to be eager to preach and proclaim because it's the only news. It is the only way by which any sinner will ever be saved from the eternal destruction that belongs to each and every one who does not know Christ. Will you receive Christ today? Beloved, what is it that makes you tick? What is it that motivates you to be the person that you are? And a better question is, are you actually motivated to be a faithful proclaimer of the gospel of Christ? We spent a few weeks now examining such questions. And as we come to the end of verse 15, let me just quickly remind you of the four key motivations we ought to pray for ourselves and for one another. We are to be a people of praise who express gratitude to God for all that he has done, not only for us, but also for others. We're to be a people of prayer, continual, fervent praying that we might be engaged and involved in the lives of others, even as Paul desired to be engaged in the lives of others. We're to be a people with a plan, desiring to see God truly at work in us and within us and develop this plan by which we might live our lives to the glory of God, develop a plan by which we might then go and tell others about what Christ has done. And then as we've seen today, we're to be a people with a passion, not, not a passion for just anything, but a passion for the greatest thing, the greatest news that could ever be made known, and that's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to recognize that we have a debt. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus Christ, you have a debt, not to God that's been paid for, but a debt to preach and proclaim the gospel to others. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you have a debt, and it's to God, and you cannot pay it yourself. So repent and believe in the gospel. Let us be determined. Let us be resolved. Let us be prayerful to see these qualities of praise and prayer and planning and passion be developed within us and developed in our church so that we might rightly and beautifully adorn the doctrine of our God, the truth of the gospel, for everyone to behold. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the truths of this passage. We thank you for the challenge of this passage. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who does not stand in the pages of Scripture as one who is to be looked upon as so distant and so foreign and so strange from the rest of us who believe. He was simply a man who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for each one of us who would be so devoted to Christ, you would use us. You would allow us to have those opportunities to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We know whom we believed. And now we pray that we might make him whom, in whom we've believed known to others. So Father, help us to that end, to accomplish this task for your glory to the exaltation of Christ, to the salvation of souls, to the building up of this church, as we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.